welcome to the 30th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. John Eichert says that economics is the national religion in this country. He should know. As he likes to joke, he's an ordained economist who has preached in four different universities over the past three decades. Most recently, Eichert was an agricultural economist at the University of Missouri, where he is now an emeritus professor. During much of his career, he was considered a conventional ag economist, one who promoted the philosophy that bigger is better in farming and that unrestricted world trade is good for farmers, consumers, and society in general. But while at Missouri, Eichert began writing and speaking about some of the downsides to the industrialization of agriculture and unrestricted globalization. If current trends continue, Eichert maintains, farming as we know it will simply disappear in this country. Such a situation would create economic, environmental, and societal catastrophe. Food security alone would be a disaster. If you think the wars we fight over oil are bad, Eichert says, wait until you see what happens when the U.S. runs short of food production capacity. But Eichert sees some hope in the growing sustainable agriculture and local foods movement, and he's become a popular speaker at conferences focusing on creating an alternative food and farming system. Eichert has published an impressive body of work over the years. In recognition of his latest book, A Return to Common Sense, The New Economic, Societal, and Spiritual Revolution, we are featuring here an excerpt of a talk Eichert gave at a meeting of the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota. As you will hear... His thoughts on globalization and our food and farming system are both troubling and hopeful. So what are the real costs of globalization? Well, to farmers, true economic globalization or a single global economy could mean the the end of American agriculture as we've known it. It was the farmers that were really pushing for globalization to begin with. They wanted free trade. We want to open up to the markets of the world. They said, that's the answer to the farm problem. That was what freedom to farm was all about. We're going to export to the world and we're all going to become wealthy. What happened? We didn't export to the world. We didn't become wealthy. Why is that? Because we're not competitive. We're not truly competitive in agriculture in a global economy. Why is that? Because our land cost and our labor cost are too high. We have other demands for our land. We have residential demands, which keeps real estate prices going up even now when agricultural prices are depressed. We have better opportunities for our labor than in farming. It's back to the comparative advantage situation. You know, the people in Argentina have lower opportunity cost of producing corn and producing soybeans than we do here. And it's reflected in the trade patterns. In the 1960s, the U.S. owned 80% of the world soybean trade. Today, we have 35%. Back in the 60s, the the Argentina and Brazil had 10% of the world soybean trade. Today, they have 50%. It may be even higher than that. They can produce things cheaper there than we can, simply because their land and their labor costs are are low. They don't have the opportunity costs that we have here. You know, cornfields can't compete with condominiums. And the Missouri River Valley can't compete with the Silicon Valley in wages. And so we simply move out of agriculture and we move it somewhere else in the world where land and labor costs are less. In fact, if you're interested in that, there's a fellow by the name of Stephen Blank out at the University of California who wrote a book on it, The End of Agriculture in the American Portfolio. And he's right. If we go to that global economy, that's what's going to happen. He didn't spend a whole lot of time in it in the book, but part of that is the corporate control of agriculture that we see today. 
The corporations that are coming increasingly in control of agriculture, not through outright ownership, but through contractual control, which gives them the opportunity to say, eventually, who will produce and who won't produce and where things will be produced in the world. And those corporations are multinational corporations with stockholders all around the world, and they don't care where they produce. They don't have families. They don't have communities. They don't have a nationality. They have no commitment to this country. They will simply move their agricultural production systems wherever on the globe. It can be produced at the lowest cost, and increasingly, that will not be in the U.S. It's not just in grains. In the NAFTA, we see hogs and cattle, livestock coming across from Mexico, coming down from Canada. You know, where's the comparative advantage in these areas? Range cattle, it's not here. It's in Argentina. It's in, it's in Australia. It's in places that have vast areas of grassland. It's not in the U.S. Where's the comparative advantage in hogs? It's not here. It's probably in China. Chicken, probably also in China, if you really want to go to the true comparative advantage. And in hogs, the big hog contractors are threatened every week that if we don't lessen up on environmental controls, they're going to move to Mexico where they have no controls or have lesser controls. And they'll move wherever in the globe they can pollute the most because that's what it's about, is a moving to somewhere, not necessarily where it's more efficient, but where you have fewer constraints on the exploitation of people and the exploitation of land. Globalization today is not about comparative advantage. It's about a comparative advantage in terms of exploitation rather than economic productivity. American farmers at best, under the international globalization that we're going to, that will be controlled by multinational corporations, become contract laborers. They become landlords, hoghouse janitors, tractor drivers. Someone else will be making all the decisions and someone else will reap all the benefits. What's the real cost of globalization for farmers? It could well mean the end of the American farm, as we've known it in the past. What are the real costs of globalization to the consumers? Well, the economists argue that we'll all be well-fed in this global economy and we'll be well-fed at a lower price and lower cost, so we'll all be better off. But what's the underlying assumption of that? Is that the cheap stuff from other countries will continue to flow in here, that it will be high quality, that it will be safe, and so on, which we can all question. But I would question either whether we can continue, whether we can keep it flowing, and what the cost will be of keeping flowing. Perhaps we won't abandon agriculture in this country, but we could easily find ourselves in a situation where we're at least as dependent upon the rest of the world for our food. And what is the cost of keeping our oil flowing today? What is the military cost that's involved that you and I and everyone else knows is related directly to our lack of independence with respect to oil? Or our dependence upon the rest of the world? How many terrorist attacks will we have in the future because of our international policies that are affected, affected by our dependence upon the rest of the world for oil? How many small wars will we fight in the future? And how many people will we kill in the future in the name of cheap food? The true cost of, of globalization of the economy may turn out to be paid in the blood of people around the world and maybe some blood of people in this country. With multinational corporations in control of the food supply and a global food situation, our food security would be lost, as would other, every other country of the world. We would be subject to blackmail. Every country of the world would be subject to blackmail from saying, if you don't do what we want, if you don't pass the kind of regulations 
or lack of regulations on corporate interest with your country that we like, then we simply won't ship the food. You say, what will happen? We've done it in the past. America has said to other countries that were dependent upon us for food, if you don't behave in the way we want you to behave, then we simply won't send you the food. You think the corporations won't do that once they control where it's produced and who gets it and who doesn't get it? I think that's being totally naive. And if you looked at the cost of food in the future, which the economists are dependent upon when the assumption of a free market economy where everything goes down to the cost of production, whenever a big part of what we pay for food is going into the coffers of the corporations to pay their stockholders and their executives, I would argue that the global cost of food is far more likely to rise and rise faster than it is to fall in a global economy. What's the real cost of globalization? It could well be the cost in terms of food security, not only for the poor nations of the world, but for the rich nations as well. What's the cost of globalization for the, of the food system to society? Fundamentally, it would be a loss of sustainability. What do I mean by sustainability? Everybody knows, I think, but we talked a long time about what sustainability means. Sustainability means a system that lasts. It means farms that last. It means being able to meet the needs of the present but leaving equal or better opportunities for the future, whether we're talking about food production or whether we're talking about material production of any kind or whether we're talking about human well-being, meeting the needs of society today but leaving equal or better opportunities for those of the future. And in order to be sustainable, it has to have the three fundamental principles. It has to be ecologically sound, it has to be economically viable, it has to be socially responsible. If we destroy the health of the ecosystem, if we destroy the ability of the earth to support life, then it won't support human life and society is not sustainable. It has to be socially responsible. The fundamental purpose of any sort of development, including agriculture or any economic development, is to meet the needs of society. And if it doesn't meet the needs of society as consumers, but also as producers, as people, if it doesn't give something, give people an opportunity to lead successful, productive lives, then that system is not sustainable. It won't be supported by society, and it won't be sustainable. And if you want a, an example of a system that was not socially responsible and therefore wasn't sustainable, just look at the communist system of Eastern Europe. They put people on the farms without the farmers having any ability to make decisions, any understanding of what it took to make crops grow. Any understanding of maintaining the health and integrity of the soil and the productivity of the farms went down and they couldn't feed the people and the whole society went down. And that's what we're moving toward today with our corporatization of agriculture where we end up with contract farmers that eventually know nothing about producing other than doing what's sent out from corporate headquarters. And that's not socially responsible and it's not sustainable. And finally, it has to be economically viable. And agriculture is not economically viable if all the farmers that want to farm in ecologically sound and socially responsible ways go broke. It's just common sense. It has to have economic viability as well as social responsibility and ecological integrity. And to be ecologically sustainable, it has to have diversity. There has to be form within nature. There has to be plants and animals. And there has to be boundaries between those things within nature and the ridges and the fields and the fence rows and so on. So we have diversity because it's, it's out of that diversity comes productivity. And without that diversity, there's no life, there's no productivity. The ecological system is simply not sustainable without the diversity that's defined by the boundaries. And to be socially responsible. 
We have to have boundaries. We have to have opportunities for people to shape the values that they like within themselves and to live in communities of people that share those values and to share some of their values with people in other communities that have different values but to treat some differently than others, not discriminating against people on the basis of any particular characteristic but simply recognizing the fact that in order for society and humans to be sustainable in society, there has to be diversity, so there has to be boundaries among people. And it recognizes also that in order for the economy to be sustainable, that there has to be boundaries as well. If we're talking about comparative advantage, you have to have two different identities. If they're the same, then there's no gains from trade. And the gains from specialization comes from the fact that we have different abilities and different goals, different abilities to produce and be productive. And the, and the productivity comes out of the diversity, not the sameness. And I would argue that removing the global boundaries in, with respect to ec economics, removing all of the economic boundaries, what will happen is we'll have exploitation of the cultural boundaries and the differences among people will be dissolved because we'll have to remove those boundaries for economic efficiency. And as we remove the cultural boundaries and the economic boundaries, we will see that the, the physical boundaries, the fence rows, the ridges, the hills will all be moved away so we can have greater economic efficiency and greater specialization. And we'll be moving toward a world that is like that barren sand and is like that dead ocean that is without life, that is without substance, because there's no form left because all of the boundaries that define diversity and divine structure will be moved away. That's the true cost of globalization to society as a whole. It's the loss of form, the loss of structure, and ultimately the loss of the thing that we call life. So what can we do about it? First of all, we can start from a foundation of understanding. We can teach ourselves and we can help society understand what the real cost and the real consequences are of true globalization in the sense of removing all the boundaries. We can help the world understand that those boundaries are there for reasons. That the boundaries define us as individuals, they define us as people, that the boundaries define ecosystems, and those boundaries are not there because they totally separate us, but they define us individually and they give us structure so that we can interact with each other among communities and among nations and among ecosystems in productive and positive ways. And without the boundaries, we lose the control. And without the boundaries, eventually we lose the life. We can argue, and I think justly so, that every nation of the world should have not only the right but should have the responsibility to protect its people and to protect its natural resources from exploitation from elsewhere. That doesn't mean that we should set up barriers around us that we become self-sufficient, but every country should have the right and every country should have the responsibility. In fact, we really need something like the World Trade Organization to exist within society today with a global ecosystem and a global culture. We need something like the WTO, not the WTO, but something like that to ensure that every country of the world has a right to protect its people and to protect its resources, not to open those up to exploitations. I think also something that we can do is we can claim our rights as individuals, as communities, and as states, and as a nation 
to a degree of sovereignty, to a degree of individuality, to a degree of integrity at all of those levels. There is a reason to define the person with the skin on the outside as a boundary. There is a reason to define a community within which people relate to each other differently than they relate to people with outside. There is a reason to have states within a nation within which people of that state have more say in how things will be done within the state and how that state will relate to another state. And there is a reason for a nation to deal differently with the people within that nation than among the nations. That's not a means of exploitation. That's not a means of being closed. That's a means of maintaining our identity and security so that we can relate to each other in positive and productive ways, which will not happen if we're all the same and all the boundaries are gone. We must understand that, and I think we stand up for those rights. We have to restore the integrity of the individual, of the community, of the state, and of the nation in our food system. And we can do that. And you see people doing it every day as they come together around farmers markets and as they join up with community-supported agriculture organizations or CSA where there's a direct relationship in both of those cases between the farmer and the local consumer. They're rebuilding the concept of community and integrity around the food system. Anywhere people meet around the concept of food, there's an opportunity to begin to develop and, and re-cement the ties that form communities and that form social identity within society and that, that form a different concept of economy, a local economy and a state economy within a national economy and within an international economy. They don't all need to be the same. In fact, if they're all the same, ultimately they'll be less productive and less sustainable if, if they all maintain their individual identity. And we can do that. Increasingly, the thing that I see in the conferences that I attend is the increasing concern on the part of the consuming public about where their food comes from. They don't trust this global system. They don't know where it's coming from. They don't know the conditions under which the food is grown. They don't know the conditions under which it's processed. They're no longer sure of the certain of the of the safety. They're no longer secure of the uh, certain of the nutrition. They're losing confidence in this global food system, and that creates an opportunity for us to reconnect people within communities around the concept of food. And the number of conferences that are being sponsored by consumer groups around the country that bring in sustainable farmers is growing all the time. We don't have to give up trade overall. We don't have to give up our coffee. We don't have to give up our orange juice. I see the fair traded coffee out here. You know, I wouldn't want to cut that off. We can't produce coffee here. In fact, we need to support other people of the world who can grow things that we can't grow so that their agriculture is sustainable, so that they have a degree of autonomy and integrity, so that they can trade. But what I'm talking about is trading out of a situation of interdependence, only in those situations where it makes our life better, not where we have to have it, and not where any other country of the world is dependent upon us, but they trade with us because it makes their life better, not that they're dependent upon it. We will not have a sustainable society until people all around the world have food security and have sustainability within their societies. That's what we need to be moving toward in the long run, and that's what we have an opportunity to do as we move to the future. And if you looked at it, you would say that the odds are against us. But if you and I look at it, we say that what we're doing now is simply not sustainable over the long run. And more and more people are beginning to realize that. And more and more people are beginning to ask questions. And one by one, that's the way the world has changed. 
One by one, we've moved away from a local food system to a global food system. One by one, as each farmer changed what they decided to produce, as each farmer changed where they decided to sell something, one by one, as consumers changed what they ate and changed where they bought it, from the local farmer to the fast food place to the supermarket, one by one, over the years, we transformed our, our local food system into a global food system. And when change happens in the forum in the future, it will happen one by one. It will happen one by one as farmers like you here today decide to do something different. Decide that you're going to sell your product somewhere different than you've been selling it. Decide you're going to produce something different than you're selling it. And connect up with a consumer locally that, that wants to buy the things that you have to buy and the things that you know that you have to produce, produce it sustainably. One by one it will change. One by one, as consumers decide that they're going to go to the farmer's market, that they're going to join a CSA, that they're going to buy locally grown grass-fed beef. One by one, as we buy from local farmers, that's the way the world will change. There's no reason that it can't change. Do we know that it will? No. Are the odds in our favor? Maybe not. But there's hope. Hope is not the expectation that something is going to happen. It's not the certainty that it's going to come about in a short period of time. Hope is the possibility that something good will happen. And I know that the possibility exists for something good to come out of what we're involved in here. I know that the possibility exists for us to move from a global to a more local, to a more interdependent trade situation with people around the world. I know that the possibility exists for us to develop a more sustainable society. And within that possibility is hope. And it's this hope that gives us the courage to, to challenge whatever is out there, regardless of how big it is. It's this realization that it could happen, that it could come about, this possibility. That's what gives us the courage to confront the system. And that's what gives us the energy to get up and do the things that each of us can do. And that's what it takes to change the world, is each of us doing what we can do in our little piece of the world. That's all that's expected of us, to do what we can do, to change our minds, and then to do what we can do in our little piece of the world. And as we change one by one, and our little pieces of the world change, that's how the world changes. And that's why they're hoping. And regardless of the outcome, regardless of whether we win or regardless of whether we lose, folks, life is simply too precious to live without hope. For more on John Eichard, including a selection of his writings, see www.ssu.missouri.edu backslash faculty backslash j-i-k-e-r-d that's www.ssu.missouri.edu backslash faculty backslash j-i-k-e-r-d send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me brian devore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org you can also call me at 612-729-6294 a special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. Okay.